0: Thank you so much. Choir, if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to so the book of Philippians chapter 4, the fourth chapter there in the book of Philippians. We've been moving through this book now in this series. We're coming towards the close of it, and what you're going to find is, if you've read through Philippians or if you've followed along up to this point, that uh, that Paul is shifting gears here. He's starting to come towards the end of this book, and uh, he's starting to tie everything together. And not only is he tying it together, but he's toward the, these next few messages you're going to see, he's going to uh, start making some personal comments to people specifically uh, in this church and to that church in general as well and so (coughs) excuse me so he is um, coming towards the close of this letter for us that's chapter 4 and uh, this morning what I want to do is to actually start in reading the passage that we're going to focus on chapter 4 verse 8 and verse 9 and then we're going to begin to make some application and then break down that passage even a little bit more so let's go ahead and jump in. Chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 9. So Paul writes and he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things And the God of peace will be with you. So, the old joke tells a story about a fellow that was hired uh, by a boss to do a very simple task. His task was to paint that yellow line down a long stretch of highway. And so he was given what he needed, he was, what, he, what was necessary, he was given a, uh, the paint can with the paint inside, he was given uh, the paintbrush, and uh, the boss told him, he said, I'm going to check on you after the first day, see how you're doing, and, uh, and then we'll just kind of go from there. And so the fellow got his his stuff and he showed up for work that next day and he began painting and he had such a quick pace. He was doing just uh, amazingly to the point to where he painted five miles of highway, that little yellow line down the middle of it. He painted five miles of that. At the end of the day came, the boss showed up and he said, how much have you done? He said, I did five miles. He said, man, that is awesome. Even beyond what I expected. You must have been really, really working quickly. Here's your money. I'll come back in a couple more days and see how you're doing. And so the next day, the man showed up for work, and he didn't get the five miles in. He was only able to get a mile in this particular day. And he showed up the third day, and he started work, and he was only able to get barely 100 yards of line painted down the middle of that highway. Well, at the end of that third day, the boss came and showed up and said, well, let me check on how you're doing. You killed it that first day, five miles. How'd you do yesterday? And the guy said, well, I was only able to get a mile done yesterday. And he said, well, that's, a, that's surprising. Well, how did you do today? And he said, well, boss, to be honest, it was tough. I was only able to get barely even 100 yards worth of highway, highway painted today. And the boss said, well, that's just unacceptable. He said, this is not what I had, had expected at all. He said, what was the problem? I mean, why the big drop-off? He went from five miles to one mile to now barely 100 yards. What was the issue? And the fellow said, well, boss, it's real simple. I kept getting further and further away from the paint can. <laughs> You know, in a lot of ways, let, let's take that paint can and let's empty it of paint and let's fill it with something else and let's call that truth. That can that is filled with truth, it seems like in this day in which we live, and it's no surprise and it's not as though it's the first time in history this has ever happened, but it seems as though our culture is walking further and further and further away from that can of truth. And not only is our culture walking further and further away from that can and from the concept of truth, but at the same time, many people who have a relationship with Jesus that we will call followers of Christ are also abandoning, redefining, and walking away from that can full of truth as well in shocking numbers. You know, when you, when you think about it, in a sense, the way the world operates is interesting because it's not as though the world outright uh, abandons God's truth. In many cases, that is the case, but often what happens is it just simply seeks to redefine what truth is. And so in very nuanced language with uh, uh, its own worldly rationale and its own worldly arguments and its own worldly perspectives, what often happens is is that truth is redefined by the culture, and, and many Christians ultimately fall prey to that, to where they also no longer hold to the truth as demonstrated to us and communicated through God's Word, but rather we fall for the lie and the redefinition of truth the way the culture has ultimately presented it. Now this happens in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different hot topics that are taking place in the culture today where this very scenario is unplaying or is playing out. One of those is in the area for example of marriage. When you look in Scripture, the Bible is very clear. I mean, in the very first two chapters of Scripture, you see God create, he creates Adam, and he creates Eve, very distinctly male and female. And what we begin to see there, obviously, from that point moving on, there's never a recording of a marriage ceremony that takes place, but the very obvious context is that Adam and Eve our husband and wife, and all through the rest of the Old Testament, and even especially when you get into the New Testament, and, and, and extra especially when you begin reading the words of Paul that have all been all been inspired by the Holy Spirit, you see this picture of what marriage looks like according to truth. And when you pour out the contents of the can of truth, and you begin to sift through and look at what marriage is, from God's perspective, marriage is is very clearly between a husband and between a wife, between a male and a female, and yet what our culture has begun to do is to look to redefine that, to redefine that and to move the boundaries, almost seemingly saying, well, that's not necessarily true in every circumstance and in every case, maybe it's only true for some people, maybe even true for you, but what the culture has done has said, we're gonna redefine what marriage is to the point to where we can say it's not only between a husband and a wife, but it can also be between those that are of the same sex. And the culture has redefined and put together a nice crafty set of arguments and nuances and rationale and perspective to the point to where many believers and followers of Jesus have said, you know what, that sounds like a compelling argument. Maybe God's way is not the only way after all, and we've walked further and further from that can full of truth. You look also at the topic of sexuality, where when you look through the pages of Scripture, God is very clear as to what sexuality looks like. It's only between male and female and the confines Of marriage between a husband and a wife. Those are the boundaries that scripture paints. It's Old Testament and it's New Testament as well and certainly you see alternatives to that in the Bible. You'll see polygamy. I mean Solomon had multiplicity of wives. The Bible never applauds that or holds that out as as an expectation but rather what we see is the fallout and the baggage that comes whenever those boundaries are moved the bible has painted a very clear picture and again you see it in the old testament especially in the new testament where you begin to see those boundaries laid out and there's this this the, the sharp warnings that say don't let the marriage bed be undefiled in hebrews and it says not not to defraud one another. And there's all these passages in scripture, old and new alike, that paint for us this picture of sexuality, that it's to be experienced between a husband and a wife, male and female, in the confines of marriage. And yet the culture has moved those boundaries to say as it relates to sexuality, the message of the culture now is that sexuality is a right to be experienced by anyone with anyone else at any particular time in their life. 57% in a survey that was done by Pew Research in 2020, 57% of Christians, right, those who say they are followers of Jesus, 57% of Christians, uh, when they were surveyed, said that their belief was that sex was acceptable um, outside of marriage as long as it was with a committed relationship. That's just outside the boundaries. And when we move those boundaries of Scripture, we found ourselves walking further and further and further away from that can of truth in the area of gender, I remember when I was in seminary my my first it may have been my first semester, but I had a class i can 't remember the class I think it was systematic theology. Uh, there was a class where we had to um, we had to memorize scripture, and one of the verses we memorized. The first verse in the class, I remember, was one that I thought, why on earth are we memorizing this one? This doesn't seem to have any bearing, right? Genesis 1, verse 27, the 27th verse of the Bible. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. It, it, it's, if it wasn't sad, it's comical, right, to look back and to think, let, I actually thought, what bearing does this have in our culture, You know, it has enormous bearing in our culture today that this is, you know, when you you empty the can of truth, right, this verse falls out and it lays out so many parameters that we are created in his image, that God created us specifically in male and female, distinctly he created us. I was doing some research for this message earlier and uh, I came across, um, uh, there's actually a a, a magazine or an online article aimed at teenagers, right? when talking about gender, that website actually listed 10 different genders, right? Not male and female, 10 different genders. And then it went on to say, and this was the quote from it, it says in addition to these 10, it said, quote, and all, none, or a combination of these. There are many more gender identities than we've listed. And when you look at the culture What has happened is the culture has gravitated away from truth. That's not a surprise, right? We were told in the Bible this would happen. We've seen it demonstrated in the Bible, starting with the very second generation of people. But what is a little bit more surprising is that many of those who follow Jesus have also taken a walk away from that can full of truth as well. You look at the issue of the sanctity of human life For example psalm chapter 139 i mean there i don't know that there's a more clear passage of scripture that highlights god's view for those who would care of what his view is highlights god's view of what life is and the sanctity of it and when it begins it says in psalm 139 verse 13 for you the psalmist says, "'For you,' speaking to God, "'formed my inward parts. "'You wove me in my mother's womb. "'I will give thanks to you, "'for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. "'Wonderful are your works, "'and my soul knows it very well. "'My frame was not hidden from you "'when I was made in secret.'" And the picture there is within the womb of that mother. "'And I was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. "'Your eyes, Lord, have seen my unformed substance.'" And then he even takes it further. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And the culture has taken a step, many steps, for decades now. And I know we've seen some victory here recently, but this is not over by any means. But the culture has obviously walked a long journey away from that can of truth to where the lives of the innocent and born are no longer protected and the lives of the vulnerable will no longer be protected if it continues. That's the expectation of what's going to come. Those are on the other end of the spectrum of human life, right? The vulnerable and those who seem to have lived their best lives in the past, right? That's kind of the next on the agenda, I would assume this follows the same track and yet there are many followers of jesus that have also walked away from that can full of truth that has been communicated to us through scripture these are just a few examples that are going to come into play as we overlay this passage philippians 4 8 and 9 over the culture in which we live and anytime we deal with these kinds of instances listen we don't need to um we don't need to forget that there are two rails on this track that as we deal, whether it's me sharing a message like this, whether it's you having a conversation in the workplace with someone who may disagree, right, there are two rails on this track that we always have to keep in mind. One rail is the rail of love and the other rail is the rail of truth. When we talk about cultural issues like this, where the world very obviously believes differently than what Scripture scripture communicates, or whenever we're dealing with topical issues like this, where even believers have gravitated away from what God's word clearly teaches, we can never afford to abandon love, and we can never afford to abandon truth. If we only communicate this message uh, uh, with truth without love, it's going to fall on deaf ears, right? And it's going to be ineffective, But listen, if we try to deal with the topics of our day merely from a perspective of love that gives latitude to another person, but we jettison truth in the process, then we're going to ultimately shipwreck. We're going to go off the rails, right? We're going to derail, and we're going to miss what God's ideal is ultimately. And so the goal today, as I look at this passage of Scripture— and as I overlay it over some of these cultural issues that are raging right now, the goal is to, to, one, just remind ourselves of what God's standard is and how it applies, but number two, to see the warning that comes when we don't live according to God's word specifically. We cannot afford to take another step further from truth as a culture and as followers of Jesus. We have to begin to walk towards it Right? To walk back to it if we've navigated from it at all. Maybe for you, I understand some of these topics are especially personal, especially difficult. Maybe for you, as in my extended family, on my side of the family, maybe you have a family member who has um, come down on the wrong side of the fence than where you stand and where Scripture stands in some of these areas. Maybe you have a family member or a close friend or someone that you admire, someone that you respect or a voice in the culture that you you, uh, uh, have listened to for so long And, and maybe they come down in a different place and maybe it's caused you to begin to think, you know what, maybe God's way isn't necessarily the only way. Maybe it is okay. After all, who are we? Maybe you've begun to think who are we to tell uh, another person who they can't love? Maybe you've begun to wonder, who, who are we? Who am I to tell a woman what to do with her own body? And maybe for you, it's raised this doubt and it's caused you to begin to question the truth of what God's word has communicated so clearly. And, and it's a very dangerous place to be because if not careful, it's at that very juncture, right? That we begin to take a step away from truth and we begin to take a step towards what we feel or what we think which can be very, very dangerous. So the first principle I want us to roll out this morning that I think is going to give us a little bit of a guardrail as we move through this passage is this very simple principle, that truth begins with God, not man. Truth begins with God, not man. Whenever we talk about cultural topics, cultural issues, whatever the issues may be, ultimately, I think for every one of us, one shared objective is that we wanna know what the truth is, right? We don't wanna live our life rooted on a lie then we will end up suffering for that when it all comes together, right? We, we want to know what the truth is. I think that's a common denominator for all of us. We wanna know the truth, What we have to understand, however, is that truth begins with God. It doesn't begin with man. And often what happens is in this very nuanced culture in which we live, that you'll find arguments and you'll find rationales and you'll find presentations and you'll find comments that are made where it seems as though man has found truth rather than God revealing truth truth always starts with God. When you think about the big picture, for example, and we begin to think about how we even came into existence to begin with, virtually, well, I won't say virtually every, many, many, many atheistic scientists would agree that the universe that we live in has a beginning. Right, Atheistic scientists themselves will agree that the universe has a beginning. There was a beginning point where the universe began. And if that is the truth, which I would hold to, and I believe scripture bears that out, obviously, Genesis 1 and 2 would seem to put that to rest. But if the universe does have a beginning, and even the most atheistic of of, uh, scientists would agree to that as well, then what that means logistically is that if the universe had a beginning, then there has to be a being outside of time and outside of space and outside of matter who brought that universe into existence, right? There has to be a being who exists outside of time who is eternal, exists outside of space, right, who is omnipresent and and who exists outside of matter, right, who ultimately brought that universe into existence. And the Bible defines for us who that is, and it's God, right? In the beginning, God created the first five books of the Bible. Doesn't tell us how he did it beyond him speaking it into existence. And then mankind, he formed, right? He, 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 he formed Adam uh, uh, from the dust of the earth, breathed life into him, right? Doesn't give us every detail. It doesn't give us answer every single question. But the picture of the Bible, right? The truth is that God ultimately brought us into existence. Everything that exists, God created except for himself. He is eternal The picture there is that even his creation bears the fingerprints of who he is and it bears his nature mankind created in his image the design right the architectural design that God crafted into his creation is unmistakable unless we just don't want to see it and as God created all of this then wouldn't it make sense that a God who is personal who is eternal who created all that we see including mankind wouldn't it make perfect sense that he would desire to reveal himself so that he be known and he has in a book called the bible a book that he has given to us without error that dictates for us who he is and what his nature is and his great love for mankind and the extent to which he has gone to ultimately forgive us of our sin to to to, to reconcile us to bring us back into relationship through the death and the burial and the resurrection of his own son jesus god who came for us And yet we see early on in the story that though God created and God called it good and he called mankind very good, that sin would enter into this creation. God in his sovereignty chose to allow it. He could have stopped it. He chose to let it run its course because mankind is created as free will. You cannot worship nor love if you are not also one who possesses free will. And we even see how this happened in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. It's interesting because when we take a look at Genesis chapter 3 and how sin entered God's creation, what we find is is that, number one, it was not God's fault. Number two, that the enemy who brought the temptation in the first place is using the same old tactics today as he did back then. Genesis chapter 2 actually is where God gives the command to Adam and Eve. Chapter 2, verse 17 in Genesis he gives them a command. He tells them they can eat from any tree in the garden. Verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. This is not mythological. This is not some type of a, an example that we're to follow. This is a real event in history recorded for us in the pages of the book that God inspired, right? The Bible. And he tells us that here that Adam and Eve were given this express command not to eat of a specific tree But in chapter three, the enemy comes and he begins to plant seeds of doubt. Look at what it says in chapter three, verse one. It says, now the serpent, this is the enemy himself, Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, to Eve, he said, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And he begins by planting this little seed of doubt. Has God really said, does he really have the right to dictate to you how your life is supposed to be lived. And he begins by planting this little seed of doubt. You move a little further into chapter 3 down to verse 4, and you'll see that not only does he plant a seed of doubt, but then he begins to outright lie. Verse 4, it says, The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. In chapter 2, 17, God had already said... If you disobey me, and if you eat of this fruit, then you're going to die. And now the enemy comes, and he outright lies, and he says, you're not going to die. <laughs> I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, you, really, you're going to die from just taking this simple little step? And then he moves from, from the outright lie to where he begins to distort and to deceive. Verse 5, he says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is somewhat true, but it's a deception. Because the day that Adam and Eve would eat of the fruit and commit this sin, they would know the difference between good and evil. But not exactly the way God knew the difference. It's kind of like the way a physician knows cancer compared to the way a cancer patient knows cancer. Right? Right? Adam and Eve's eyes would be opened to see sin for what it was. And they would now know the difference between good and the difference between evil. But that knowledge would be vastly different from sinless, holy God, who later in history would choose to take it on himself experientially when Jesus would die to pay for it. And so the enemy comes with his nuanced language. He comes with his... Arguments and he comes with his perspective, and he comes with his rationale, and he says virtually, it doesn't matter what God says. Whoever put him in charge anyway, this is your life. You want to eat this fruit, you eat this fruit. You're not going to die. He didn't tell you the truth. In fact, you're even going to have your life enhanced. You're going to be like him. And it's that same line, right? That same tactic that the enemy has been using ever since. Which brings us again back to Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Let's read it now. Maybe a little bit of a different lens through which you look as you read these verses. We read them once. Let's read them again. Verse 8, verse 9, Philippians 4. Finally, brethren, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, and the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the arguments against the Bible is that it was not written in a day which relates to us today. I would completely reject that argument because the Bible is as applicable today as it was the day in which it was written. Let me just give an example. Paul here is writing this letter called Philippians. He's writing it from a Roman cell, right? Most believe he's in a Roman jail cell. He's writing this letter because he was imprisoned for preaching the message of the gospel that was not popular in its culture, right? Paul was not this holy man insulated in a cave on a hill somewhere, insulated from the fallenness of mankind. He writes this very letter, locked up, shackled, probably to a wall, certainly to a or to a uh, prison guard, right? Uh, he writes this letter, having suffered and suffering unjustly. And he writes it to a group of believers in a little city, that archaeologists believe probably ran ten to 20,000 in population, the city of Philippi, that was in the midst of the Roman Empire. It had the distinction of being a Roman colony, patterned after Rome itself. And don't forget, because we can't afford to, that in the context of not just this letter, but virtually the whole entire New Testament, we find that the context of it was written in a culture that was just absolute in moral decay, The Roman Empire ruled the land in the first century where we read the New Testament. And in that Roman Empire, where Philippi was located, where these believers were called to live out their faith, where the church was birthed into an experience of moral decay, in that Roman Empire, prostitution was gladly embraced as an official face of the Roman Empire. And as it related to human sexuality... The Roman Empire, across its breadth and scope, gladly embraced a person's right to experience physical interaction with anyone that they chose, whether a slave, whether a prostitute, and for the men, whether even a boy who was a minor. That was the culture in which the New Testament was written equally as applicable to us today as it was in the day in which it was written. So we can't say, well, the Bible may have applied back then, but we've outgrown it. No, 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 no. And it's against that backdrop that Paul makes this statement in verse 8. Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, of excellence, or worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's against that backdrop that he says what he says. So what does he mean when he says, whatever is true? Remember, truth begins with God, it doesn't begin with man. What Paul doesn't say there, he, he doesn't say, whatever feels good, dwell on that. He doesn't say, whatever makes sense to you, dwell on that. He doesn't say whatever everybody else is doing or whatever is popular, dwell on that. He says no, whatever is true. In other words, you've got to cut through the voices of the culture. You've got to cut through the voices of those who don't value God's word. We've got to come back to the heart where God, who is eternal, who has revealed himself to us through the pages of his word, has expressly demonstrated truth to us here. This is where we come back to to find out where truth is. Now we don't gravitate away from that rail of truth and we don't gravitate away from that rail of love, right? We keep both rails in place as we travel the hot topics of our culture, but we cannot afford to derail from either love or truth. Paul says whatever is true, this is what we need to dwell on. And and, and by the way, let me just say as a reminder, let's piece some things together. If we look to redefine truth, then we are also at the same time by default attempting to redefine God. Why is that? John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, speaking of himself, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so, if we try to repackage truth, if we try to redefine truth, if we try to make it, in, in, you know, craft it in terms that it's more agreeable to us and our desires personally, then we're also attempting to redefine and recraft who God is, which is not a wise choice to make. So Paul says it's truth that counters the lies. It's truth that counters the doubts. It's truth that counters the deception. He says whatever is true, right, we understand that comes from God because it begins with him, dwell on these things. He also says whatever is honorable. This means whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is worthy of reverence. Again, the world has its view of what's honorable. In Rome, it was honorable to choose whoever you wanted as a man, prostitute, slave, young boy, as an outlet for your physical desire. To them that was honorable. To God, no. I think to most everybody sitting in here, I would I would assume. We would understand not not to be honorable either. And so Paul says, whatever is honorable, dwell on these things. There are boundaries, right, that God has put in place that we have to live by and within that boundary is honor outside of it is dishonor Paul would go on and he would say whatever is right dwell on this it's a Greek word dekaios. it means whatever aligns with God's standard whatever aligns with God's standard In, in, in other words it's not right for us to choose to treat another person or to view that person differently because of the the tone of their skin the color of their skin right that's not right for us to treat somebody differently because they look differently than us, come from a different culture than we do, speak a different language than we, than we speak. It's not right for us to treat someone differently. It's not right for us ultimately to treat someone based on their social status or their skin color or their life experience or their choices even in life. Why? Because all of us, the Bible says, have been created in the image of God. It's not right to treat somebody based on something other than them being an image bearer of who God is. Paul goes on to say, whatever is pure, dwell on these things. The Greek language there for the word pure carries with it a connotation of moral purity. Whatever is morally clean, it means to be undefiled by sin. The pornography industry today, what that industry brings in financially would startle and astound every person here of the numbers, the dollars that are that are generated, not just in our culture, but in our own nation by that one industry alone. And yet most people don't know that many of the people who are part of that particular industry, the link is unmistakable and the numbers are astounding. Those that are in that industry who also come from foster homes or broken homes. I was in a Lunch and Learn meeting about ministry to those that are in foster care, families that are navigating that particular arena of life. And when they put together, connected the dots of how many children are in foster homes and ultimately make their way into that particular industry or prostitution or something similar blew me away. And yet there are people that would say, you know what, move into the next area. Paul says, whatever is lovely, they would say, you know what, this is a part of my life that's pleasing to me. I'm not hurting anyone, I'm in my own home, right? What's the big deal here? Paul says, whatever is pure, dwell on these things. Whatever is lovely, dwell on these things. Whatever is of good repute, that means whatever is well spoken of, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, He says, dwell on these things. And By the way, the the, the world, the culture has a knockoff for all eight of those things that he just listed. The world has its own description of what's true, what's honorable, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's good repute, what's of excellence, what's worthy of praise. The world has its own little category. It's walked a long way away from the can, right? And sadly, many Christians with it. You know, there's an interesting correlation here that when Paul says he lists these eight things, and then at the end he says, dwell on these things. That word dwell literally means to think deeply upon, to focus upon. To meditate on, not like Eastern, New Age religion, but, but to think deeply, to chew on these things. He says, let these things uh, be at the front of your mind. Let these things be deep in your heart. Let these things, right, these eight qualities, let these be drivers in your life. Why is it important, right? Why is it important that we dwell on those things? Why would Paul say to a group of believers, why would he say to these Christians in a fallen city like Philippi, in the midst of a Roman Empire where the boundaries were not just moved, they were virtually non-existent? Why would he say dwell on these things before, in verse 9, he says practice these things? Because, and I, Here's why I think, because there is a progression, right? That any time we step into sin, sin doesn't just happen in that moment. There is a progression that started with a thought that extended to a consideration that then moved into acceptance and agreement and then ultimately the sin. Right, it's been about two or three weeks since I've preached on Krispy Kreme, so let me do it again now. It's been too long. Let's say you're dry, you know, you're, you're sitting at home, you're six weeks in or so now into your New Year's resolution. One of those was to eat better, to lose a little bit of weight. And the thought comes to mind what if, what if I had just one Krispy Kreme? There's the thought, right? You begin dwelling on that thought. It starts with a thought, it then extends into a consideration. It's not just, what if I had one? It's, you know, I think I might just ride by and see if they're open, right? And you feel that bitterness because we don't have one close now anymore. It has brown paper on the windows and the hot sign is gone. I'm working on that in my own heart. And so you begin to no longer think, what if I had a donut? And you begin to extend into, you know maybe I'll just ride by that then gravitates into you know what I'm getting my keys and I'm going by there but I'm not going in all right I agree it'd be good just to go see if it's open and when you're there you you then have this internal struggle that that moves from what if to maybe I will to I think I might that ultimately this is going down and 12 donuts later right (laughs) you're thinking I just blew it why did I do this Every person you read of in the news and that scrolls across your news feed, every person you know personally who came to a place in their life where they went so far off the rails that they made a choice that, had, uh, that, that they just ultimately experienced the fallout and the consequences that were just beyond what could be imagined. Listen, it didn't start there. It started back there. And when we think of our own lives in those places where we went off the rails and we made choices that we ultimately regret, right? It didn't just start there with the action. It started back there with where we dwelt in our minds. And Paul says, listen, if you don't want to end up in the woods, off the rails out here, then you need to dwell on what is right. And he gave this list of eight things. And then in verse 9, he says, and the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. You're not alone as you do this. Principle one, truth begins with God, not man. Principle two, dwelling on God's truth should lead to living life based on God's truth. Not where we just agree with it, but we live it out. And maybe for you, there are some areas of your life today that aren't lining up with what's in that can of truth, right? Maybe you've begun to think through some things that's more reflective of the culture's view, where God is... is, squeezed out rather than having a view that aligns with the truth of God's word. Listen, it's not unloving to tell someone the truth. It's not unloving for God to tell us the truth. It's not unloving for God to put parameters and boundaries in our lives and guardrails. The reason he does that is because he loves us. And when we jump those guardrails and we go running off into what we think is going to be a fulfilled life that runs in opposition to his word, we're going to be the ones that suffer. It's expected that the culture will operate that way. It's incredibly sad when the church does. And so four implications and I'm done. I'm going a little bit long today. Four implications and I'm done, real quick. So if all this is true, what are the implications? Number one, whenever we deal with a dilemma or a tough issue, I think it can be helpful to sift that through Philippians 4, 8. When you face a big decision, whenever you are navigating a hot topic, whenever you're trying to figure out, all right, I hear all these voices in the social media on this particular topic, it doesn't seem to ring true. It seems like the Bible says something different, but boy, those, uh, th- those arguments are so compelling and, and you feel that tension there, just sift it through Philippians 4, verse 8, right? That's a really good grid there. Implication number two, as as we deal with these hot topics, we need to remember that we should never compromise or abandon God's truth. Never compromise or abandon God's truth. Number three, at the same time, never abandon or compromise love, right? Right? God's love, especially if we're in conversation with other people who believe differently and God opens that door, right? And and you begin to talk through some of the topics of the day and, and you begin to take a stand for what truth is. Never do that stand on truth without also standing with an attitude of love. Jesus did both perfectly. He would come to the woman caught in adultery and say, neither do I condemn you, love, go and sin no more, truth, And then number four, we are called to be salt and light in a fallen world. And this quote is not unique to me, but man, it rings true. That if you choose to be somewhat of a moral compass, it doesn't mean you run around as the moral police, but if you choose to stand on truth and to be a moral compass in a fallen world, in a fallen culture, don't be surprised when you become a lightning rod. Because it's going to (laughs) come. It's going to come. You know, as we navigate this world, Christian God has you here for a reason. There's a reason that you're still here as salt and light in a world that is so far from him. In a world that has redefined truth, repackaged it, in so doing has tried to redefine God. Just remember, the further we walk from the can, the further we walk from God. And the further we walk from him and his truth, the worse that life is gonna be. We're here to walk with him, to stand for him, and to communicate the message of the gospel, the greatest news in all of history, that a God who has every reason to have nothing to do with us has not only created us but has come to pay for our sin for us so that if we only lay down our sin and come to him on his terms and surrender in faith in Jesus and repentance of our sin, that he will welcome us into relationship and even call us sons and daughters of his. That's the truth. We can't change it. But walking within it is the way to the abundant life. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you've given your life to Christ already, then you have a relationship with with Jesus who has described himself as truth itself. The Holy Spirit lives within you. and We have the privilege of being able to discern in very difficult days what his truth is as we read his word and as we look to live it out if you've never given your life to Jesus, listen, you're not here by accident. You're not just a compilation of cells, right? You are here by design. Your life bears the fingerprints of the God who created you, a God without beginning, without end. And he created you into, the, into time, and he placed you into space, and he is sovereign over all of it. But without a relationship with Jesus, your life is separated from him, the very God who created you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He has a desire for a life that is beyond anything you can imagine. It's a desire to give you an abundant life and a life that's full and a life that's fulfilling and a life that lasts forever. But it only comes not when we continue to pursue life on our terms, but when we lay down our sin and we lay down our efforts and we agree with God, you know what, God, I've blown it, I've sinned. And we invite Jesus, God, who came and died and rose again. We invite him to come and we ask Jesus to forgive us and to wipe our heart clean and to save us and to rescue us. And when we do that, he, he answers that prayer. And he takes away all of our sin and he wipes that slate clean and he gives us a brand new heart. And though we may look the same on the outside, on the inside, everything changes. And life looks differently. And when this life on this earth is done, we step into the one he has for us for all of eternity. The Bible says no eye has seen and no ear no mind can conceive what god has in store for those who love him and he invites you today to know him in that way as savior as father as lord if you've never given your life to him right where you sit this morning it's just an expression of your surrender it says jesus would you forgive me save me and be my lord from this day forward and he'll do it god we thank you Thank you that that's the kind of God you are to us. You're not a God who stays off in a distance and waits for us to fail so that you can blast us. Lord, you're a God demonstrated as that father in the prodigal son story. Lord, who, who longs for relationship to be reconciled and you even take the first step, Lord, as you came and you died in our place, Jesus, to pay for that sin. Lord, it only hurts us when we try to redefine what your truth is. It only hurts us when we try to step outside of your boundaries to look for life on our terms, God life is found when we walk with you in relationship. According to your truth, it's for our good that often starts as we dwell on those things. And God, we pray that our minds will be fixed on the truth of your word that ultimately results in a life that's lived by that truth that makes a difference in this fallen world for your glory. For us in Jesus' name, we pray.